This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening. I'm very pleased to be part of this mini medical school presentation about climate change. And I'm going to be giving uh, the first talk, an introductory talk, the health emergency of our changing climate. Um, as you can see at the bottom, I thank uh, Physicians for Social Responsibility and uh, the Climate and Health Literacy Consortium. That's a group that has actually studied climate change and what messages work best and what people retain. And I'm, I'm taking advantage of that research to uh, uh, frame my messaging. So the, these, these are mostly the messages from, from the Climate Health Literacy Consortium. Um, I've added a little, but the first message is that global warming is real, um, that we are causing it, and I have added unequally, because I think that's important, and that it's bad for us, and again, I've added unequally. Uh, there are things that we can do, and there are co-benefits to doing that. So that's the main uh, part of the talk, and then there's just a little epilogue where I give uh, what I hope will be an example of uh, something you can do uh, to make a difference, or something I did with uh, a group I'm in. So uh, the Lancet has had uh, issues about climate change since 2009, and already then they said it could be the biggest global health threat of the 21st century, and they said the impacts will be felt all around the world, and not just in some distant future, but in our lifetimes and those of our children. And that has absolutely uh, turned out to be true, and things have only gotten much, much more worrisome since that uh, that first uh, climate change issue in 2009. Um, so the first the first message is that uh, global warming is real, and I've cut this down to one slide because I'm assuming that everybody now knows that the planet is getting warmer. Um, I picked this one because the source of it is interesting. The source is the Munich Reinsurance Company, which is one of the biggest reinsurance companies in the world, and reinsurance companies um, sell insurance to insurers. So their job is to cover the catastrophes that are so bad that otherwise insurers would go broke and they need to insure themselves against them. And of course, as a reinsurance company, they are very interested in the effects of climate change and in publicizing those. And they have a whole lot of slides on their website and, and they come right out and say, Please download these slides, use them. You don't need any more permission. Everybody uh, give talks about climate change. So the next part is we are causing it uh, unequally. And um, the, first, uh, the first cause, of course, is uh, global population. This uh, slide shows how population has increased uh, in the last 12,000 years. And of course, it starts getting very, very steep around the 20th century. Um, people typically say, oh, this is so bad, it's an exponential rise. And, and actually, um, it hasn't been exponential for the last uh, 50 years or so. So since 1970, I just used PowerPoint to draw a straight line, and it has been linear. But linear is bad enough because the linear increase in population has been about 82 million people per year. Or put another way, one billion people every 12.2 years. 
And this slide also shows that most of the increase has been in Asia and to a lesser extent uh, in, in Africa. The population of Europe has been pretty stable and North America has only increased uh, a little. So that was cause number one, increase in population. Cause number two is uh, use of fossil fuels per person. Um, so um, fossil fuels that we have had, um, the population has increased by a factor of five since 1850, but the energy use per person has increased by a factor of four. So you put those two together and the total amount of energy, this is in uh, exajoules, and exajoule is 10 to the 18th joules. That'd be uh, one followed by 18 zeros. Um, it's a measure of energy. Anyway, there's been a 20-fold increase in the use of energy. And from the color coding, you can see that mostly that has been fossil fuels. Um, gas, oil, and coal are the biggest contributors. So a uh, 20-fold increase in energy use, mostly fossil fuels. And what that leads to, when fossil fuels are burned, it leads to carbon dioxide. And um, concentrations of carbon dioxide um, have been closely correlated with uh, temperatures for uh, at least the last 800,000 years for which we have data. And the source of these data uh, is uh, people drill uh, into Antarctic ice way down, and the farther down they go, the older the ice is. And you can go down to ice that's 800,000 years old and look in the bubbles and measure how much CO2 was around there. Um, and by looking at the ratio of different uh, isotopes, you can estimate what the average temperature was. And this shows there's a, a close correlation between um, carbon dioxide concentrations and global temperatures. Uh, and the scary thing is, this is the last 800,000 years, but this is where we are right now with a carbon dioxide concentration in the air of over 400 parts per million and that hasn't been seen in the last uh, 800,000 years. Uh, and so we're very concerned that it will lead to, it already has led to higher temperatures and that that will uh, continue to increase. Uh, it's important that it's not just carbon dioxide. Uh, there are other greenhouse gases, other gases that trap heat and contribute to global warming. Uh, one of the important ones is methane. And this slide, shows that carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide, the third most important one, have all been increasing dramatically uh, in the last uh, couple hundred years. Um, but they have different, what's called global warming potential. So the global warming potential compares how much one molecule of methane or nitrous oxide traps heat compared to carbon dioxide. And the thing is, the global warming potential varies depending on what's called the time horizon, because um, methane is very potent, but it doesn't last as long as carbon dioxide. So for a 20-year time horizon, it, each molecule of methane contributes 86 times as much as a molecule of carbon uh, dioxide. But for a 100-year time horizon, that's lower. It's more like 34. And I think a lot of scientists are now saying we should be using these 20-year time horizons because we don't have 100 years to make the kind of changes that we need to make. Um, nitrous oxide less has a, uh, lasts a similar amount of time to carbon dioxide, so those 
20 and 100 year time horizon numbers are more similar and they're uh, close to 300. So what do these greenhouse gases do? Well, obviously they trap heat. And this is very, very basic non-controversial physics that um, energy comes in from the sun and some of it is radiated back out by the earth. Um, some of it bounces off clouds and stuff and goes out in the atmosphere. Um, but some of it is trapped by greenhouse gases and is blocked from uh, going out, uh, out through the atmosphere, out into space. And the amount of warming of the Earth that we get depends on the balance of how much energy goes in versus how much energy goes out. And the greenhouse gases act like a blanket around the Earth in the atmosphere, keeping energy from going out with the result that the Earth heats up. So that was the second cause, which is, um, so first was increased population, second, burning fossil fuels at a, a much higher rate. Uh, and the third is market failure. Uh, this is a quote from the Stern Review on the Economics of Climate Change. Climate change is a result of the greatest market failure the world has seen. The problem of climate change involves a fundamental failure, failure of markets, those who damage others by emitting greenhouse gases generally do not pay. So there have been many calculations of, you know, the actual cost of a gallon of gas in terms of the cost of the greenhouse gases that are released when you buy it, uh, when, you, when you burn it uh, in your car, or even the cost of a hamburger. And they're many times higher than the price you pay at the pump or at uh, your Burger King because those costs are externalized meaning other people have to pay them, especially it's going to be people in uh, uh, low-lying countries where sea level is going to uh, inundate their countries, not the people who are actually driving their cars or eating the hamburgers. So um, uh, it's, it's real. We talked about the cause, but how do we know, how do we know that, um, I mean, we know that, that, Greenhouse gases will trap heat, but how do we know that the warming we're seeing is due to that and not some sort of uh, natural uh, variation as, as at least uh, some greenhouse gas, greenhouse, some global warming deniers uh, have claimed? Well, we use models and the people who study climate have these complicated models that include all the things that might affect average temperatures, um, not only the gases in the atmosphere, but the sunspots and, and things like that. And they compare what is observed for temperatures to what the models would predict. And they fit the models based on data in the past. And this actually, I have to say, I'm, I'm delighted to see is a, a slide that has not been removed from the website of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. Um, and this slide shows that, um, that the observed increase in temperature fits models that have human effects and doesn't fit models, the blue ones, that don't include human effects. So that doesn't absolutely prove that we are causing climate change, but it does say if we are not causing climate change, there is some other thing that's not included in the models that makes the models not fit. And 
but they do fit when we include the, the human effects. So the, what I just showed you was models that sort of try to understand what has happened in the past, but the other thing we use models for is to try to predict what's going to happen in the future. And uh, the best science summary comes from the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, you can Google that. All of their reports are uh, free uh, to the public. The latest is the fifth assessment report, latest complete report, which was released in 2013. Um, it had uh, 130 countries represented, uh, 450 lead authors, 2,500 expert reviewers, and it's important, these are all volunteers. They're not people who uh, are, are being paid by the IPCC. And there's a very uh, transparent peer review process. So these things go through multiple drafts and the scientists make comments on each other's works, work in order to uh, um, uh, have it be transparent and have a, the highest quality science they can. Um, and this is an example of the sort of science that they do. So you can think of the IPC uh, fifth assessment report and the other reports as uh, what we call in medicine a meta-analysis, meaning you take all the studies that have been published on some topic. It could be, uh, you know, studies of the effect of statins on heart disease or uh, blood pressure on stroke. And you um, put together these studies to try to say, you know, how similar are their results and what can we be confident of? So this is just one example of the kinds of models the IPCC makes. And this is a study of different models where, depending on where the carbon dioxide concentration stabilizes, remember we're at 400 now, what is the probability of exceeding a two degree uh, centigrade change in, in temperature? Okay, uh, there's general agreement that a two, that a two degree centigrade rise in average global temperatures would be catastrophic. So we're trying to prevent that. The higher the carbon dioxide level goes, the higher the probability that that will happen. And we're already at the uncomfortable, you know, somewhere around 30, well, maybe 10 to 50% probability. So each of these lines represents a different peer reviewed scientific study. And, um, you know, and you'll see some of them, there's more than one by the same authors. And sometimes, you know, they'll publish one and then they'll refine their model and they'll, they'll publish another one. And then somebody else will say, no, I don't think you did that right. My model's better. And they'll publish that. This is what the IPCC does is it sort of says, okay, this is the range where these different models are. And all of them, of course, show that the higher the carbon dioxide, the higher the chances of exceeding this two degree centigrade, which is a 3.6 degree Fahrenheit uh, increase in average temperatures. It's a little bit of a problem because the the climate change deniers say, oh, but you, you I mean, you're giving me this white range. You can't say exactly what's going to happen. And this is a problem we scientists have, which is that we tend to be honest and upfront about our uncertainty. Um, but there's no uncertainty that higher carbon dioxide concentrations will cause global warming and that we're causing it. And then I pointed out um, we're causing it unequally. So this is a map that shows uh, carbon emissions. It's, it's old, but it hasn't changed much. It's uh, 
The United States, with 4% of the world's population, has been responsible for about 25% of greenhouse gas emissions. So that's why this United States looks so bloated on this map. And uh, if it were compared to population, it would be even more bloated. So the next message is it's bad for us. And once again, it's bad for us unequally. And a lot of the rest of this course is going to be about how it's bad for us. Um, for the second part of this presentation, uh, Christy's going to talk about heat waves. Um, but this is just uh, uh, from last June. A French meteorologist looked at the, uh, the uh, heat map of uh, France, and it reminded uh, him of uh, the, the painting The Scream by Edvard Munch, because it looks like that. And, and uh, the higher temperatures, and especially the, the heat waves, Big problem, especially for vulnerable populations that Christy will talk about next. Another problem, uh, increase in wildfires, and anyone in the Bay Area certainly is very, very familiar with that. Um, they, Besides leading to horrible destruction of the stuff that's burned, they increase particulate pollutants and ozone. And you may remember for a while, uh, in 2008, we had the worst air quality anywhere in the world in the San Francisco area. Uh, elderly children and people with respiratory illnesses are the most vulnerable. And the 2018 wildfires in California were the worst ever uh, recorded in California. And uh, Dr. John Bombs and Catherine Gunling will be talking about uh, fires and other air quality issues related to uh, climate change uh, on May 26th. Another big problem is uh, infectious diseases. So with the warming, many vector-borne diseases, that's diseases that are born, uh, transmitted by mosquitoes uh, or uh, other uh, arthropods or insects or uh, animals that can transmit a, a disease to a person. Um, the kind of mosquito called Aedes, uh, Aedes aegypti, um, is a, a not a native mosquito for California. It's an invasive uh, species, and we're now seeing Aedes mosquitoes um, this, I use a, a mnemonic for at least for our med students to help them remember what diseases are caused by Aedes mosquitoes: uh, chikungunya, dengue, yellow fever, and Zika. These are all bad diseases that you don't want to get. The Zika, particularly for pregnant women, because it, it causes uh, horrible uh, microcephaly in the, the fetuses. Uh, and then there's um, waterborne diseases. So along with uh, global warming comes a lot more flooding. Uh, from storms, and uh, that leads to societal disruption. And um, when you have things like that, where the water supply isn't safe, then you get diseases like cholera, other uh, infectious diseases transmitted by the fecal-oral route. Another huge problem is, is droughts um, that lead to uh, uh, the, the, the melting. You know, is the Arctic, you can sort of think of the Arctic ice as sort of acting like ice, in an ice box that helps keep things cool. As that melts, things warm up, and uh, we get lower crop yields, food insecurity, malnutrition, population displacement, and armed conflict. Um, and uh, um, maybe you, I don't know if you know that the uh, civil war in Syria really was partly caused by a horrible drought there. It's an article from uh, Thomas Friedman in the New York Times. Between 2006 and 2011, some 60% of Syria's landmass was ravaged by drought. 
With the water table already too low and river irrigation shrunken, it wiped out the livelihoods of 800,000 Syrian farmers and herders, and they ended up going to the cities. And it was the inability of the Assad government to take care of them that was partly responsible for the civil war in Syria, which is then, you know, of course, affecting people all around the world. Uh, increased uh, storms and flooding. Um, we're all seeing plenty of that, which caused direct injuries and deaths, but then, as I mentioned, contaminated water supplies and increased risk of infectious diseases, long-term psychological effects, uh, post-traumatic stress and, and grieving and so on, and huge financial uh, losses. The 2017 hurricane season, you probably remember, three horrible hurricanes with uh, those amounts of uh, damages. Um, and then uh, respiratory disease, asthma and allergies. So even when there aren't wildfires, uh, pollen seasons have gotten longer. People with allergic illnesses are suffering more from that. There's all kinds of mold and mildew that happens in houses after flooding, um, the smoke from the fires, and higher temperatures are closely correlated with higher ozone levels, which have been shown to increase uh, respiratory and actually also uh, cardiovascular mortality. And um, psychological effects, um, as I mentioned before, PTSD, depression, and eco-anxiety. Uh, many of us are suffering from this fear that the future is going to be horrible and the future for our children and grandchildren. Um, and I'll say a little bit more about that, but Dr. Robin Cooper from our Department of Psychiatry um, will be talking more about that on June 2nd. And maybe the scariest thing of all is sea level rise. Um, as, as with climate change, two things happen that raise sea uh, level. One is ice melts, but the other thing is just thermal expansion. As things get warmer, they expand, and those two things have led to sea level rise, which will lead to more coastal flooding during storms, saltwater intrusion into freshwater supplies, and eventually population displacement, refugees, and armed conflict. So I showed you before um, from ice cores the last 800,000 years, but CO2 levels um, have been higher if you go back millions of years. And uh, when they were, the temperatures were two to three degrees centigrade higher and sea levels were six meters higher. So if our temperature rises by two or three degrees, um, the six meter sea level rise that we'll see, this shows what would happen in Bangladesh and Florida, what percentages would be underwater. And one of the problems in Florida is that the soil is porous. So it's not like you can like build seawalls around it to keep the water out because it will just, it will just bubble up from the ground. So, um, this was a demonstration, a stand-up for science demonstration at the uh, meeting of the American Geophysical Union. Um, I love this sign. Ice has no agenda. It just melts. Um, by the way, that's me over there with other members of Physicians for Social Responsibility. Um, and, and that, I think, also was an example of one of the messages that we're getting from the COVID uh, epidemic, which is that, that um, science is real. We'll come back to that. So um, who was affected? So this was the graph I showed you before of who's causing it. 
These are world maps showing who is affected, and you can see the huge discrepancy between the greenhouse gas emitters and the places that are suffering from drought, floods, uh, storms, and, and so on. So um, it's, uh, the, the, the effects of climate change are very unequal. So that's the bad news. The good news is there are things that we can do. And uh, one thing you can do is estimate your own carbon footprint. Um, there's many online calculators. Um, the best ones include your food. We'll come back to that. And they show the effects of changes you can make and are state-specific. Um, so you can Google carbon footprint calculator. My favorite is on the Nature Conservancy site. And the other place to Google is the footprint network where you can see your environmental footprint. So the U.S. per capita carbon footprint is about 21 tons. Um, so after you've done that, if you're like uh, I and many of us in academic medicine used to be, uh, one of your biggest contributions to uh, climate change and to your carbon footprint is airplane travel. And one trip to the East Coast from California uh, your share of that, riding uh, economy class, is one to two tons of CO2. It's higher in economy plus and, uh, and first class, one to two tons. And that's in relation to your typical per capita household electricity consumption in California, where we actually have a lot of hydroelectric power, is only three tons of CO2. So for years, I was bugging my wife and my kids, oh, turn off the lights, you know, you're wasting energy. And then I would hop on a plane and go to uh, NIH for a meeting or something like that. And that would completely, uh, totally swamp all the possible little conservation we could do. So one good thing about COVID is people are learning to get stuff done uh, remotely. So um, reduce your travel by combining trips and then uh, considering offsetting your travel. If we have time afterwards, I can. if there's questions, I can talk about carbon offsets. So another thing you can do is look at the food you eat. And it turns out not all foods are equal. And there's one particularly type of food that's bad for, that causes more climate change, more global warming, and that's ruminant meat or meat from ruminant animals. So that's mostly um, beef and lamb. Um, but animals that have a rumen digest the cellulose in grass or whatever they're munching on, um, partly by having bacteria that help them with that digestion. And a byproduct of that is the production of methane. Um, and so when these animals are burping out methane, that goes up into the atmosphere. And that's why they cause so much more climate change and global warming than uh, either pork, which is not a ruminant, or poultry. For fish, it depends how the fish was caught. You know, if it's from trawling, where you have to have the, uh, the boats running and burning diesel fuel, then it, um, uh, it'll have a higher greenhouse gas footprint. Um, but um, not only are there good things that we can do, but there are co-benefits of doing them. And this is the first slide about that. This is a, a meta-analysis. I mentioned meta-analyses before when we group together studies uh, different studies to try to find the best answer by combining the studies. And this is a meta-analysis of all-cause mortality, finding higher all-cause mortality for uh, people who eat more meat. 
And there are studies suggesting that actually red meat is worse for you than white meat. So this led uh, UCSF medical students uh, to call on UCSF departments to go beef and lamb free because of the carbon footprint. And several departments, including my departments, epidemiology and biostatistics and pediatrics, OBGYN, ophthalmology, urology, anthropology, history and social medicine have all pledged not to serve um, beef or lamb at their, um, at their departmental events. And there's a lot more we can do to cut down on our uh, red meat consumption. Um, and the other thing, you know, especially people in healthcare can do um, is um, look at our own carbon footprint. So um, the healthcare sector contributes about 4.4% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. If we were a country, we'd be the fifth largest producer of greenhouse gases. And I think, um, I think what all of us need to do is look in the place where we work or the circles in which we operate and look at, is there waste there? Um, I work in healthcare, and so I look and notice and try and do something about healthcare waste, which is about 30% of our spending. Uh, it amounts to more than $3,000 per year. And discretionary funding for anything, including infrastructure, conservation, renewable energy, is constrained by the huge amount we spend and the huge amount we waste on healthcare. And this is a quote from the Academic Senate Sustainability Committee, trying to reduce the environmental footprint from healthcare without examining what we do is like trying to reduce our carbon footprint from travel without considering what trips we take. So this is actually my focus and my, my research and my, my main, my day job. Um, and there's another mini med school course going on, uh, starts pretty soon, and I'm giving a talk in that one on June 3rd called Safely Doing Less, um, uh, part of the mini med school course, What's Next? So my research really is focused on trying to find uh, and reduce uh, waste in healthcare. So another thing we can do is divest from fossil fuels. Um, this is a quote from uh, Bill McKibben. If it's wrong to wreck the climate, then it's wrong to profit from that wreckage. Um, and uh, Fossil Free UC was started by students in 2012. Um, in 2018, the UCSF Academic Senate Sustainability Committee, on which I serve, pro proposed a system-wide divestment memorial. That's like a resolution to the regents. Um, the UCSF faculty passed this uh, overwhelmingly, 79% in favor in 2019. And uh, then it passed the system-wide Academic Senate, faculty um, all over the UC system, with 77% support. And, and victory. This is the fossil-free UC site after a years-long campaign culminating in a full UC system-wide vote for fossil fuel divestment. Um, the University of California financial officers announced they would divest $13 billion of endowment and $70 billion of pensions of fossil fuels. Yay. Although they did say they were doing it to save money <laughs> because of their fiduciary responsibility, they got, they got the message. So um, I want to just uh, mention uh, COVID. Uh, there's this horrible epidemic 
has a little bit of a silver lining. One, there has been a huge drop in greenhouse gas emissions. And if you live in the Bay Area, you may have noticed how clear the air is. Um, it has introduced many to video conferencing and telehealth visits. UCSF telehealth visits have gone from 2% to, I think it's like 60, 70% now of visits. And um, it's an opportunity to learn from our mistakes. So um, if the argument, we can't do what the scientists tell us because it would be too expensive, so let's do nothing for now, I think has lost some credibility. And so I think COVID-19 presents a teachable moment um, and this is actually comes from a, a conference call that Bill McKibben was on from our Climate Health Now group. Um, so a teachable, one thing to learn is science is real. Ignoring threats does not make them go away. Timing is key when responding to threats. It is just so important, even the couple of weeks that the Bay Area got as a head start on COVID compared to uh, other places like New York City has made a huge difference. And if we'd responded to threats of global warming threats 50 years ago when the issue was first raised, it would have been easier, but it's still gonna be easier now than later. Uh, and that this also, you know, COVID-19 in South Korea versus the USA. And I think he said another message that health professionals are a trusted voice. So doctors need to speak out about climate change like they are about, uh, about, about COVID because we are the ones who take care of the victims of bad policy decisions, and it doesn't feel good. So he said, time to get angry and speak out. So we know enough to act. Um, given the high risks and the disproportionate effects, even a low probability would warrant action. And the good news is the interventions have co-benefits, reduced air pollution and environmental degradation, and uh, decreased international conflict from the extraction of burning of fossil fuels, better health from eating less meat, from walking and cycling rather than driving, and so on. So what you can do is set an example. Your coworkers will notice how you get to work if you go into work. Your friends and family will notice what you eat and where you go on vacation. Your colleagues will notice your business travel. And uh, just to give a little preview, of uh, treatment for eco-anxiety. And this, I have a picture of Robin there. Uh, I think that's from when she was speaking at, uh, at Stanford. Um, come together in community, find allies who understand what you are feeling. Um, take care of yourself with mindfulness, meditation, time in nature, and then identify what specific problems speak to you and get to work. So I have a closing story. It's a true story. Um, pictured here is the San Mateo Hayward Bridge. It's the longest bridge in the, the Bay Area and the 25th longest bridge in the world. And um, back in 2001, this was uh, the view if you exited the Foster City Costco. And if you were in either of those two lanes, you were going to Hayward. But the only sign to tell you that is not really visible as you exit the Costco parking lot. So I made more than one accidental trip to Hayward as a result of this poor signage. So um, I uh, used the, Cal the um, Caltrans website to make a suggestion. I wrote on behalf of the Social Action Committee of the Unitarian Universalists of San Mateo, which thinks globally and acts locally, I'm writing to call attention to a problem that wastes time and energy. 
The problem is that it's too easy accidentally to get on Highway 92 eastbound at Foster City Boulevard and be forced to drive all the way to Hayward. So that's uh, that's September 2001. Uh, more than a year later, we're up to the seventh email, and this is Robert House from the Department of Transportation responding again. He says, I have forwarded your remarks once again to the person in charge of signing for San Mateo County. As we said previously, signing is a matter of balance. Too few signs lead to confusion. Too many signs can lead to the same result. Blah, blah, blah. You can't have your bridge signs. Um, Fast forward (laughs) up to 2004, email number 28. By now, I'm uh, much more friendly with Mr. House. Greetings, Mr. House. I was over at the Foster City Costco this afternoon. So naturally, my thoughts turn to you. How are you doing? I hope you have a happy holiday season, and don't forget that the wish of the Unitarian Universalists of San Mateo this year, as in 2001, 2, and 3, is that someday every trip to Hayward will be a wanted trip to Hayward. Will our wish someday come true? You could make it happen. Well, it finally did. This is the before picture with some members of the Social Action Committee and people from the Department of Transportation. And there's the after picture. We got two signs there. And in fact, we got these new signs. The yellow part is new. Uh, If you're actually on uh, Highway 92, not just on the entrance to it, and that moving car hard to see, but also says last exit. So we were victorious. So in summary, climate change poses grave threats to the health of people and the planet. Healthcare contributes because of its own large carbon footprint and its costs, so we want uh, people to improve healthcare value. You can reduce your own environmental footprint by conserving energy, reducing travel, eating less meat, and offsetting carbon, but this will not be enough. We all need to become change agents, so I highly recommend you join a group that's working on that because there are co-benefits, as shown in this slide. What if it's a big hoax and we create a better world for nothing? Oh, this is <laughs> me and my wife at some demonstrations. And uh, thanks very much for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.